Welcome back to another episode of Venture Unlocked, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the business of venture capital. I'm your host, Samir Kaji, and this week I'm absolutely psyched to bring you my conversation with Frank Rotman, founding partner of one of the top fintech firms in the world in QED investors. The firm was founded in 2008 and has been early partners to companies such as Credit Karma, Klarna, SoFi, and Nubank. Before starting QED Investors with his partner, Nigel, Frank held operating roles at Capital One. For those that already follow Frank on Twitter, you'll know he's one of the most insightful thinkers in the industry, and I can't tell you how many of his Twitter threads I've bookmarked. Given the level of thought Frank does put into the venture ecosystem, I did want to take this opportunity to have a more global dialogue about the state of the venture market, including a close evaluation from both the risk and return perspectives. I know you're going to enjoy hearing his thoughts, so let's get into the episode now. Frank, it's so good to have you on the show. Thanks for uh, joining us today. Glad to be here. So I've been really excited to have this conversation for a number of reasons, not just because you're a reformed banker like myself, but also because you're one of the most thoughtful people in the industry, both through what I've seen in written content, your famous tweet threads, and even some of the podcasts you've done. I, th- I thought the one with Keith Rubois was excellent. And of course, that's all just been reinforced through the conversations you and I have had. And today we're going to do something different. We're going to actually take a zoomed out view of the market right now. There's so many conflicting data points. But before we go there, let's get into your background a little bit. You started QED with your partner back in 2008 when fintech was in its infancy. But tell us how that all started going back to your days as a banker. Yeah, so Nigel Morris and myself have a shared work history in that we've worked together for 28 years now. So he is the uh, only constant in my adult life. And I I wouldn't feel good if uh, he didn't call me and tuck me in every evening. So the two of us have worked together a really long time. And we started back at the precursor to what became Capital One. It was a, a small regional bank called Signet Bank. And Rich and Nigel were hired away from a consulting firm to uh, out the credit card division into what eventually became the IPO and spin out of, of Capital One. And I was part of that early story. Um, so I joined you know, Signet Bank back in 1993 um, and spent a lot of time with Nigel in the early days trying to figure things out. Helped spin out the company uh, and then spent another you know, 10 to 12 years there just really building businesses that the company needed from scratch or fixing some of the big businesses when they were broken. Uh, spent a lot of time on the risk side of things. I was the first chief credit officer of the company before there even was a title chief credit officer, just trying to figure things out. And, you know, Nigel and I have solved a lot of problems together, um, and arguably Capital One was one of the first fintechs, a fintech of the 1990s. Uh, When we spun out, we spun out from a bank to be independent in the markets and use securitization and, you know, other vehicles for funding the company, which is how a lot of the companies today, you know, are separating themselves from banks, not necessarily becoming banks. Um, and finding a way to offer their product and service without the entirety of the banking infrastructure behind them. So we had done this for a number of years. Nigel left in 2004. I left in 2005. And we joined back up together again in 2007 to start thinking about what we should do together. All of those conversations led us to building what became QED. There was actually a third person who we had worked with back at Capital One, Caribou Honig, And the three of us really just created QED because we thought that our experience would be helpful uh, to these young startups 
in uh, the financial services world. We didn't even have a word for it. There wasn't a thing called fintech. So we thought of them as financial services company that would serve banks or maybe do something a little better than the banks. But we are going to do this whether this fintech thing became real or not. It was the only thing we actually knew how to do. And, you know, in retrospect, we got lucky because this fintech thing became real. So much has changed since then. And I remember back in 2008, not only were we smack dab in the, uh, the beginning of the uh, global financial crises, but within financial services, we had seen so much upheaval with Lehman, with Bear Stearns. And I think in 2008, less than $100 million being put into these companies. I think last quarter, fintech companies raised somewhere, somewhere in the order of $30 billion. So we've seen this massive shift toward the industry that you invest in, but more broadly within the market. I think in 2009, venture capitalists raised $17 billion. 2021, it appears to be $100 billion in terms of raised by venture funds. And I find myself in this very conflictive view where on the right side of my shoulder, I have this raging optimist. And on the left side, I have, I have the cynic sitting on my shoulder saying, what's going on? This kind of feels and rhymes like things I've seen before. We're going to do a deep dive into the marketplace, but what's your current assessment of the market right now? How do you view it within the partnership at QED? Yeah, I wish that there were a single answer here. Um, just like you have two shoulders and you have two opinions, like depending on which first principles you start with and how you see things playing out, you come to very different conclusions. So there actually is a bear case and there is a bull case for what's happening in the market. It's easy to stare at the facts, right? You can look at how much money is flowing into the private markets. You can look at the valuations. You can look at the multiples that are being paid on any relative basis, whether it's revenue or earnings, you know, if there even are earnings in the, in the private markets. Um, and all of these numbers are heading in one direction and it's a really steep path, right? I mean, the, the multiples are exploding, the amount of money coming in is exploding, and it's causing a little bit of chaos. And I think it also starts with the fact that the asset class that the money is pouring into is actually a relatively small asset class, and a lot of people lose sight of that. So if you compare the private markets to public stocks or to real estate or to currency, like those are big markets. The private tech investment VC space, like if you keep narrowing it into, you know, this space that we're talking about, it's actually been a, a relatively small asset class for a long time. And when a lot of new money pours into a small asset class, it can warp things and distort it for some period of time while it tries to find a new normal. And I think the reason why people think of it as a much bigger asset class than it is, is because it can actually create a lot of individual personal wealth or individual amazing outcomes. So people stare at someone going from founding a company to a billionaire in five years, and they say, wow, this is just incredible. But you know, a billion dollars relative to these gigantic markets is still very small. So again, I think there's a lot of warping and a lot of distortion that's going on because of the amount of money that's pouring into a small asset class and just trying to find a new norm. In the asset class, I mean, if you think about that $100 billion that I mentioned in terms of being raised by venture capitalists, I think the global equity market is somewhere in the order of $100 trillion in the U.S. The, the U.S. public equities market is, what, $50 trillion today with the top six companies being all tech companies being $6 trillion. And one of the things that sometimes I struggle with is today, you're right, the valuations have increased pretty dramatically. 
And when you're looking at investing, I think there's two axes, which are what is the potential return profile of a single investment or a pool of investments? And then what is the overall risk that you're underwriting to? And on the return side, we've seen two things, both evaluations at entry going up pretty dramatically. When you look at the numbers for seed in Series A and Series B, and a lot of it's because we're flush with liquidity, but we've also seen these exits that are a step function of what they used to be. I remember 15 years ago, we would underwrite to a $1 to $3 billion exit as being an outlier. And today you see companies in the private markets, an example would be Canva, that's in the de- design company at the, at the core, that's being valued at $40 billion with a $1 billion in revenues. What future are you underwriting to when you're looking? Are we in a place where this is the new normal, where companies can now achieve size and scale like never before, and those $1 to $3 billion outcomes really just aren't what we should be underwriting to? Or is it, are we on steroids right now? And some of the things that we're seeing in that 10 to 100 aren't things that will last through what could be an economic regression. The, the, the truth is that if you think about the frameworks for valuing companies, every company is a function of two things. It's a function of the intrinsic value of what it's worth today. So you have a machine, you know, and you're putting money into the machine and something is being produced by that machine that ends up selling it for more than it costs you in terms of the money that you put in, right? So you build uh, a product and you sell it for more than it costs you to produce. So that machine uh, is worth something, the intrinsic value of what that machine can produce. But because you have a management team and you have a machine that's constantly changing and evolving, there's an option value for what that machine could be worth in the future, right? So you've got the intrinsic value of today's machine, and you have the option value of what this machine could be worth in the future. Historically, in more normalized markets, the intrinsic value is valued uh, for the majority of what the total enterprise value is. And the option value is just that. It was option value that some people would take a bullish view, some people would take a bearish view, but it wasn't the majority of the valuation of the company placed on the option value. It was the intrinsic value. Today's market, because there's no yield anywhere, there's nowhere where there's growth to be found, investors are looking for generating alpha, and generating alpha, almost by definition, is generated by looking at the option value of what these high-growth companies could be worth in the future. So if you think about ascribing value, if in the past it was 90% being ascribed to the intrinsic value and 10% to the option value, it might be the opposite now, where 90% is being ascribed to the option value of what these companies could be worth. And the reason why that option value, not only is it being valued, but it's being valued at, at lofty, lofty numbers uh, for these high growth you know, companies of the future, is that the art of the possible has revealed that you can build some gigantic companies, right? So the thought of a trillion dollar company was far-fetched a few years ago, and now you're seeing $2 trillion companies out in the marketplace. Um, The thought of building a billion dollar, $2 billion company that would go public when we first started investing in 2008 was just a crazy outcome. That was a right-hand tail outcome for one of our investments. We always thought you would invest in a fintech and or a financial services company that would become a specialty finance company that would eventually sell to a bank for a couple hundred million dollars. Like that was a typical outcome that we would underwrite to. 
And now, you know, no disrespect to founders at all, because it's very hard to build these businesses. But these billion dollar, $2 billion, $3 billion companies are being stamped out every single day, you know, in the private markets. So the the multi-hundred million dollar outcomes are not the art of the possible anymore. That's kind of the the middle or the left-hand tail of the distribution. The right-hand tail isn't even billion or $2 billion companies. It's now 10, 20, 30, $50 billion companies. And the right-hand tail of the right-hand tail, we're seeing $100 billion companies being minted in the private markets. So with such a different distribution of outcomes, it can't help but trickle backwards and say, what is the option on this company worth? Right. If you have an unlimited right-hand tail and it's bigger and deeper and longer than it was in the past, well, that option value is worth more. Right. And, and if you look at the, uh, the option value, what you're really ascribing is, is some level of a, a call option or an option that your option in what you've invested at whatever stage is going to be worth some large multiple given the unlimited bound of the right end of the tail. Now, if you were to then deconstruct the right end of the tail, and it seems like there's a lot of factors that, you know, I think are pushing that right tail as high as possible. And it, you mention it, there's no yield, there's a lot of money, there's a lot of liquidity. How much do you ascribe to those factors that are more systemic and really related to the entire financial industry versus technology right now has matured to a point with distribution, with the ability for companies to scale across geographies, where even if the markets do recede a little bit, these companies can still reach those type of revenue numbers and multiples. How would you break that down between systemic global and what is actually happening within technology? There's a narrative that you can create where the market that we're in is a very rational market, right? And the narrative for that starts with the technology revolution. It starts with what it takes to produce a product, to get it off the ground from zero to one, to distribute the product through distribution channels where you can now find customers and scale faster than ever before. Uh, the tech stack being more efficient than ever before so that when you eventually build your machine, it's a much more efficient machine than you know the incumbents. And you can start to lay out all of these pieces of a narrative that concludes with a very important fork in the road. Um, where the rational side of the fork of the road would say, and the incumbents aren't going to be able to do all of these things. If you wanted to take the other fork in the road, where you think the valuations on these companies are a bit irrational, that fork of the road would say, yeah, all of these things are true, but incumbents are going to be able to do those things themselves. So if you start with the first principle that the incumbents are going to be slow, they're not going to react, their tech stack is going to be an albatross, the way that they've gone to market, the brand they've created, the product that they're delivering is going to weigh them down so much that it would just be easier to wipe everything off the face of the planet and start from scratch with a motivated team, a new tech stack, new investors, new capital, new way of decisioning, then the narrative plays out such that nearly 100% of all of the market cap of the incumbents in these technology companies are at risk and will be transferred over time into this next generation of startups. Right. So now if you think about that market cap, you know, flowing from the public markets, which we just said were very, very large, 
into the next generation companies, which are in the private markets today, there's this nice rational argument. I mean, you literally could wrap it in a bow where you would say, wow, what's really happening is that the old companies just aren't going to be able to react and the new companies are going to figure out how to serve customers in a better way. And when we look at the charts 10 years from now, the top 10 of any category are going to be a completely different set of companies. And the more you believe that narrative, the more you would flow money into the private markets and the more you believe that you should pay up for getting into the best companies, you should capitalize them to give them a chance to build the product and service and distribute it so that they can scale. And then you reap the benefits of having that ownership before they go public. So I'll pause there for a second because your question, I think, is a very good one. But that narrative, you know, I'm curious if you've heard that before, if it's resonating with you. But, you know, if you wanted to wrap it in a bow, that would be kind of the bullish case narrative. I think it is the bullish case narrative. And you've struck on a few things that I find it, that are quite interesting to highlight. So the, the first thing, obviously, we talked about the size of the global equities market relative to the private markets. The private markets are quite small, and let's say $500 billion gets put into venture-backed companies through the course of 2021. If you believe that these are the new incumbents of the future, that is actually a small amount of capital going into those type of companies. And we, you and I worked in industries that seem ripe for that type of disruption. In, within the banking sector, I think globally, publicly traded banks are collectively valued at $8 trillion. And if you look at a timestamp that's maybe 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now, what is that top 10 bank list look like? And who are the new generation of incumbents? And what is their value cap? Now, there's the counter argument, which is that's all great, but you don't know what the time bound is for some of these companies to be able to displace some of these incumbents. And things like banks are actually well protected by regulations and they're well protected by distribution. And therefore, how do you then underwrite that when you're looking at a business where you're making investment decisions right now, where there is some uncertainty over the next two to five years, we've been in a 14-year bull run, and some of the companies that you invest in right now may not be resilient enough to get to the point of displacing some of those large incumbents. Yeah, I mean, it, it is interesting, starting with what are the, the charts going to look like 10 years from now or 15 years from now? You know, I think it's almost a narrative violation to say it's going to be the exact same players that are out there today. You know, the thought that there won't be a digitally native bank you know, in each and every country in the top 10 charts 10 years from now or 15 years from now. I mean, that to me is a narrative violation, you know, relying on old infrastructure, relying on branches, which are really 50 by 50 boxes on street corners that help build awareness for the banking product and services. I mean, it's an old way of doing things. It's a protected way of doing things. But again, the thought that one out of the top 10 uh, in every country is a digitally native, digital first bank um, feels like that would be, you know, a, in an over under bet. Like I would take the over on that if you gave me a duration of 10 years. So if that's true, that means there are going to be some very large companies that are built in financial services that are going to replace some of the companies today. Now, as for making a decision on how you invest in these companies, the market is actually, th th this market with free flowing capital is actually very helpful 
because it means that you don't have to get everything precise. You have to have the path right, you have to have the team right, you have to have the strategy right, but you don't have to have everything precisely laid out and you know priced to perfection so that the team executes with no flaws. Um, when you capitalize a company, the capital actually attracts the talent that then turns the narrative into reality. The capital gives you time to actually make things happen. So you can tell this amazing story and say, look, we want to be this great digital bank. You know, we actually are eventually going to buy a, a bank charter. We're going to, you know, find a way with the regulators to get one. We are going to be a multi-product company and we are going to start with product X as our wedge. Well, in a world where there isn't a lot of capital, you need to make progress on that wedge. You need to make sure you deliver against it. You need to make sure that you scale enough. So that when you raise your hand, when you're almost out of capital for more capital, some new investor would come in and say, I see what you've done. I believe the story. Here's some more capital to play out the next part of the story. With the amount of capital that's coming in, we're allowing these companies to turn over multiple cards or have enough capital that they can hire the people that they need to will into existence a lot of the functionality that they need to make it true. Doesn't mean they're all going to succeed but it de-risks the business a significant amount because you can bring the people in and you buy time for these companies to actually figure things out. So you're no longer bound by duration. You mentioned the, uh, and you touched on the axis of risk and de-risking and, and having cards turned over between rounds. I want to get into that because I, I'm a, as an ex-banker, I like to underwrite to risk and thinking about some of the things that are happening. But I also want to before we go there and thinking about sort of the bull case underwriting to the art of possible and what we may see in the future, is this notion that the technology markets have matured pretty significantly. And I think that started with things like AWS and the iPhone and really allowing for technology to be developed cheaper and proliferating at such size and scale that we had never seen before. And, and that does not rhyme with anything we've seen outside of maybe the uh, prior industrial revolutions where we saw periods of incredibly strong growth and innovation. And I think that's where we are. But on the other hand, we've also seen the maturation of the financial markets, where historically, we were very much a cottage industry. You know, and most people would underwrite in venture 30 to 40 billion was sort of the cap that could be raised to really achieve the type of returns. I think that's been blown out of the water. And we've seen hedge funds and fast deployers like the Tigers, the Coke 2s. We saw Sequoia announce that they are moving to an Evergreen. Big announcement. Yeah, exactly. So I'd love to get your thoughts on the maturation of the financial markets as it relates to investing in technology companies. And maybe you can touch on your view of the Sequoia announcement. Yeah, I'm still digesting the Sequoia announcement because I think you'll only know how smart it is 10 years from now. But there are some very, very smart people at the helm, you know, who believe this is the right answer, you know, going down the path of an RIA, being able to hold public stocks, you know, having an, an, basically an unlimited duration on investing and helping companies. Um, on the surface, it sounds fantastic, but you know the devil is always in the details, and there are negatives to structures like that as well. Um, so I still need to digest it. The market will need ten years to digest it to figure out if this is really working or not working. But the the maturation, I think, is uh, very important because the asset class is changing out from under us as we're watching it. 
And for people who want to use their old playbook in the market as it's kind of evolving, and it, and by the way, like this evolution, it's not like it takes place over 10 years or has taken place over 10 years. It's accelerated so much that the VC market of a year ago doesn't even resemble what it resembles today. And two years ago, that was the Stone Ages, right? So things have just accelerated. And if you're not watching what's happening, then you're actually fairly blind. And a lot of the venture firms that are out there today need to reinvent who they are and how they play in this world of capital flowing into the space with very different players and very different value propositions. You know, the industry that we're in is what you can think of as a C-analyze-win industry, right? Three major components. And if you compare and contrast the private markets to the public markets, they're very, very different in all three of those dimensions, right? So in the public markets, you can see everything, right? I mean, like there literally are ticker symbols where they want to be found. So they tell you who they are. You can see every company that's out there. From an analysis standpoint, Everyone has an equal playing field in terms of the data that they have available to them in the public markets. Now, you can supplement it with other data sources and a lot of you know players out there that are very smart try to find other sources of, of signal. But the reality is, I mean, there's a lot of data out there that's published by companies on how the companies are doing with earnings calls and ways of, of questioning. It's a fairly level playing field. And then win, it's just about hitting bid ask, right? Like that's all there is to win. You have to look at it and say, am I willing to pay the price? This is the price for me to play. Compare that to the private markets where there's so much activity out there that, I mean, just seeing everything that you would want to see is impossible for any firm at the size of the firms today. So that that's very important because the size of firm could be changing to really take advantage of market position of some of the firms to see more deals that are out there. Um, but you know, if I think about FinTech as an example, back in 2008, it wasn't exactly a popular time for you know, FinTech startups, you know, the global crisis and other uh, issues were causing people to worry about bigger things. But I can say that I was able to see domestically and even internationally, most of the interesting deals, if not all of the interesting deals that were out there. There just wasn't a lot going on. I think there was somewhere under a billion dollars that was put to work in fintech globally uh, back in 2008. So not a surprise. And we're on pace to do 100 billion this year, right? Globally in fintech. And you just think about the sheer number of companies that are out there. I mean, we've grown from just a, a small cottage, you know, shop to 17 investment professionals investing globally. Uh, and even then, we only cover certain geographies, and we barely see you know, a fraction of the deals that are out there. Some geographies we see a lot more than others. And in the US, it's getting to a point where, you know, new companies are being minted that I've just never heard of. I mean, it seems to be a daily occurrence. So there's just so much activity that on the C side, you can't see them all. From an analysis standpoint, the speed in the industry has picked up such that analysis almost has to take place by having a prepared mind, not when data rooms open up. And I think I've been quoted in some articles recently. I think one came out today in in uh, in Vice, where it was really talking about how we had a, a deal that we had been talking to the company for a long time. The data room opened up, and I mean, it was it, it was crazy how fast things moved. And we got a call where they told us we had two hours to make a decision on whether we wanted in on a twenty million dollar check. 
right? Like these are big checks for, you know, very, very quick timelines. So analysis needs to take place by, in some ways, generating your own signal and looking for what's happening in the market and having a prepared mind, which is very different than it was even two years ago, where you could take a month. You could take six weeks to actually do your work and dig into companies and get to know them, get to know what was happening at a very deep level. Uh, and then winning. Like winning is not trivial. Um, winning used to be about a relationship that you built during the diligence process. It used to be about your track record as an investor and ability to help the company kink the curve on outcomes. It was about the uniqueness that you brought to the table. And, you know, I can speak personally. Again, when we first started in 2008, we were a unique beast. There weren't a lot of firms that actually cared at all about fintech. So winning was about having someone at your side who actually understood you, you know, who understood your company and really could help kink the curve on outcomes. But now winning is really difficult, especially when you have some of these new players coming in where they literally are just inexpensive capital and they won't disrupt anything else. They don't want anything to do with the company from a governance standpoint. They just want to give you money and have you get back to work. So when, when you compare and contrast kind of see, analyze, win in public markets and private markets, what a lot of venture investors have to think about is that there is a lot of money pouring in that's now chasing what I would call qualified beta. Right. So instead of just chasing alpha, which is about, look, let's take the 10,000 interesting companies and distill it down to like the fraction of that that we would be interested in because we think that this fraction is the right hand tail distribution. A lot of the money that's pouring in is saying, look, if it's easier to create companies than ever before, if it is an unlimited right hand tail distribution, if you can put small amounts of money to work while the companies are small and then have an option value through pro rata on writing bigger checks as the company gets big then we should be playing beta, not playing alpha. So in some ways, some of these giant funds are coming in and saying, look, if we can just put quantum of money to work, that's better than seeking alpha on a smaller number of deals. And if I can put quantum of money to work and I can do qualified beta, which means almost a Morningstar strategy where you rate everything you know, one to five stars and you knock out the one to three star companies and you really just play in the four to five, like that beta is actually very interesting now when in the past, if you just threw darts in this asset class, beta would be a negative return. And that might not be true anymore. And that might be the most profound change in the industry. No, there's so much to unpack there. And in what you've described is very much the playbook of some of the, the hedge funds and certainly Tiger and, and Kotu, uh, Tiger in particular, they do come with a prepared mind. They understand these industries, they've done a lot of underwriting in the companies before meeting them, and they often make quick decisions. And they've taken the approach, let's deploy a lot of money into companies in the initial check. We will get out of the way. We, we are not value-add. We are speed and price. And the ones that do break out and start to de-risk themselves as, as those cards overturn, we are going to plow more money into those companies. And we will comfortably, in their mind, underwrite to an 18% a net return on the assets that they're managing. And what it's done is it's challenged a lot of the purest VCs, right, who historically have said, well, you don't invest spray and pray. You know, you have this very cottage view, price discipline, ownership discipline, value add, do a lot of diligence, 
ultimately do four to five deals per year based on, you know, the universe you see. And I'm curious in terms of where you think QED fits in right now within that, because I know you spend a lot of time with these companies. And how are you evolving your own mental model with this new reality of harder to win deals, price discipline is something that you have to think about, but I feel like in today's world, you can't be pedantic about it and you have to make some tough second order decisions when you're paying a price higher than you originally you know, expected to or historically have been comfortable with. Tell us a little bit about you know, the last couple of years, because you're right, two years ago was the Stone Age. We're in a different world. How do you look at it today? Well, I don't like it, you know, but it is the reality of the world that I play in, right? Uh, you know, you're seeing a number of people retire and, you know, there are great reasons for, you know, these amazing investors to retire. But, you know, you could joke that it's because the the entire industry is about to reinvent itself. And if they've had these great careers, why bother? You know, why why do the work to figure out what the next 10, 20 years is going to look like? Because it's it's hard, you know, to really internalize this and figure out um, how to find a strategy that works because I can speak for myself. I'm, I'm a fundamentalist investor. And in this world, that makes me very uncomfortable. Now, I have to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. But I start with this premise that businesses exist to make money, right? And that might be an unpopular view. Some people say businesses exist to solve problems. Well, that's true. That's how they make money. But it's a business, right? I mean, you produce something, it costs you less to produce, you know, than you end up selling it for. You create margin, and that margin over time is the return for investors investing in solving a problem, right? It's a very, very basic concept. And the problem with that concept in today's world is that it relies on you building a company that makes money. And the distance between when you invest today and when a company makes money it just seems like there's an ocean, you know, in between where these companies start and where they need to get to. And I think the valuation relative to all of the traditional metrics have just been completely disconnected. So they're not even loosely connected anymore. They are completely untethered. And if you think about the historical correlation, if you look at the public markets over the hundred and some odd years, 150 years of public markets being in existence, you know, there's a 95 plus percent correlation between earnings per share and share price, right? So companies that make more money are worth more money, right? And that's a statement around the intrinsic value of these companies. And, you know, if they are good earnings machines, they are worth more. And if it's a durable earnings machine with high margins, you might pay a little bit more for that. You know, if it's a less durable company, you'll pay a little bit less. But when earnings per share go up, the price per share goes up, right? The companies are worth more. So with everything being untethered, it's really, really difficult to, to stomach, you know, paying some of the prices so early in a company's life when they still have so much to figure out. So to put this in perspective, I, I looked this up and um, it's a pretty interesting statistic. Uh, if companies want to grow up to become what I'll put in air quotes, real companies, let's just take an artificial line in the sand at the Fortune 1000, right? So let's look at the Fortune 1000 companies in the United States. And again, it's it's an artificial line that we're drawing, but let's just call those companies real companies. The bottom company in the Fortune 1000 is 
uh, bringing in 1.8 billion of revenue a year. Right, 1.8 billion of revenue, and if you get to the Fortune 500, it's something like four and a half or five billion of revenue. I don't know the exact number, but it's a big number. And we're now seeing companies that have a million dollars of ARR being valued at a billion dollars, you know, hundred million billion dollars. Like the the disconnect is just striking. Where hundred times ARR, two hundred times ARR is not actually the exception anymore. You're starting to see it more and more frequently, which means it's not really the metric that the companies are being valued on. They're being valued for the option value of what they could create in the future. You're not actually looking at what they've produced. So, you know, the uncomfortable part of me looks at the prices that you have to pay as an entry point and you realize, you know, you're investing when there's still so many unknowns in the company, they get to a billion, two billion, three billion dollar valuation while there's still a lot to figure out. And in fact, some of these companies are going public while there's still a lot to figure out. And the public markets investors are actually understanding of this because there's no alpha anywhere else, no yield. So they're actually taking on risk in order to generate alpha by buying into half-proven business models, which really was not the playbook of IPOs in the past. So I'm very uncomfortable, but I have to be comfortable with the fact that there is this replacement theory with these new startups being the replacement for the incumbents. And if you have the right teams and the right problem, you can size that. And not just through team and TAM, but through the quality of thinking, through the solution that they're proposing, um, working with them hand in hand to kind of will a company into existence that is going to connect the dots over time. But again, the uncomfortable part is, you know, staring at these companies and saying like, when are they actually going to get to 100 million of revenue, 200 million of revenue? And I think the whole narrative that we've been talking about, the zero to one is easier than ever before, and maybe even one to 10 is easier than ever before. But for these companies to get to 100 million of revenue, 200 million of revenue, where you barely are starting to scratch the surface on these companies becoming, again, in air quotes, real companies. That's not necessarily easier than it's ever been before. It, it actually does take time. That's where I think there's a a little bit of a disconnect in the market, if not a very big disconnect, is that the valuations are just way, way ahead of traction, and you have to be along for the ride as an investor. So all you can do is pick the right teams, the right problems. You can be there at their side. And what gives me comfort is that I'm an active investor, and I get to actually write the story with them. If I were a, a passive investor just planting money with companies, then I'd be a lot more uncomfortable than I am. One thread I'd like to maybe even further pull on is just looking at where we are right now and and understanding that, of course, in many cases, speed is an important determinant of winning in a deal, whether it's a, the initial or even in cases where you have to rush to do a follow-on because a round has happened six to 12 months prior to then what you expected it to, is thinking about are there any shorthand inputs that you look at to help accelerate your own decision making, particularly maybe when the price or the ownership isn't within the normal parameters of what your model underwrites to. I am a conviction-based investor, not a team and TAM investor. Um, so I, I don't just look at the market and look at the team and say, I'm done. Like This is big enough and this is the right team. Let's plant money and have them go solve problems. I want to be on the journey with them. So being a conviction-based investor starts with saying, 
do I like the problem? Do I like the problem statement? Do I like the solution statement that the company is proposing, at least as a first attempt, you know, at tackling the market? Um, because if I'm going to get involved, I'm going to be working on this with the company for seven to 10 years. Our whole firm is, right? So if if I write a check, I'm committing all of the QED team members because we're all ex-operators. We help all of the companies in our portfolio. I'm committing everyone to saying this is a problem that we're going to be talking about a lot. So there are problems that I just can't imagine myself waking up in the morning and being interested in. doesn't mean that they aren't problems worthy of tackling. It doesn't mean that you can't build good businesses or great businesses around them. But if I'm not interested in waking up in the morning and thinking about that problem and trying to solve it, then I, I can't ever get to conviction. Um, same thing with the team. There's this personal relationship that historically I would build during diligence or over time. Now, that's being challenged right now with the speed dating that's going on in VC. For me personally to get conviction, there has to be a personal connection there with the founding team. And the simple test that I use is I try to imagine the phone ringing and I'm really busy at my desk. Do I want to pick up if I know it's them? Right. And if, if I'm willing to drop everything that I'm working on because I'm excited about talking to the team, whether it's good news or bad news, that's a good sign. And if during diligence, I already start thinking about, oh my God, if the phone rang, what would it be like to spend an hour on the phone with these people? Like I'm done. Like it just, it isn't going to work and it doesn't mean they're bad people. It's just, it's not a fit. But then it really does come down to figuring out, could I advise the company on what to do tomorrow? Right? Is there a path forward? If I were running the company, would I feel bullish about the prospects of the company? Would I be excited? Could I motivate a team? And the more answers that are yes, the more I become convicted. And once I gain that conviction, it's game over because I can't stop thinking about the problem. I can't stop thinking about the team. And at that point, I'm just going to do what it takes to win. Now, I qualify that there, there always is a point where it just gets so irrational that, you know, I, I can't help myself. I'm affectionately, I've said this on other podcasts. I affectionately have been referred to as the cheap bastard. Like at some point it just becomes irrational because you're an investor. You need to get a return on your investment. You need to make good risk return trade-offs. You know, once you get to conviction, like you really, really want to be leaning into those companies. It's a great mental model, and I'm glad you went through that. And we spent a lot of this conversation talking about the potential return of any investment, given the potential right tail. We haven't talked too much about risk. And going to risk, I feel like there's a lot of risk factors that exist in these type of markets. Of course, there's always an economic regression that could create and cause valuations, the capital markets to dry up, some of the uh, hedge funds not as investing as they do right now. There's more competition because more, more companies in, in the similar markets are getting funded. That requires more funding for each company. Oftentimes, you see companies raise rounds within six months of each other. Sometimes it's days of each other. We <laughs> we almost uh, saw something that might cause the universe to implode, where I, I, I was uh, watching a Series A almost close before the seed docs closed. So uh, that almost happened, and if it did, I think the universe would have exploded. So you have things like that, and the fundamentalist in me too, just because I've been through two downturns, says I'm, I'm taking a lot of risk when 
not much has happened to de-risk a business in a very short amount of time. And there are people that are willing to pay those option checks because they're investing out of a much bigger fund. But as an investor, though, many of these companies I find, and correct me if, if this is something that you're not seeing, are getting a lot of capital very early when it's not completely clear that their business fundamentals have been figured out, where it's not clear where the business model is going to grow and scale to have a day where they can have great earnings per share and they're going to be a profitable company. And that sometimes scares me because when you get a lot of money at a high valuation, first you have to live up to that valuation over time. You have to grow into it. It creates a lot of stress and probably focus on spending money to grow. And if it's an incomplete business model that can add a lot of risk from an investor standpoint, where you're pumping a lot of money into companies, not to bridge to something, but they turn out to be peers, where at the end of the peer, there's an anchor pulling the entrepreneur into the ocean because they've taken on too much money at too high a valuation without enough learnings behind it. One way of thinking about this is the champagne and hangover problem. I, I talk to founders about this all the time, like getting a high valuation and a lot of money where you can look at your bank balance and feel great about your runway. Like that's the champagne. But the next day, now you have to get back to work and earn your way into it. That's the hangover, right? You, you now have set expectations at such a high level that you need to put that money to work in a way that de-risks the business and scales it such that it's more valuable at some point in the future than it is today. And I don't think founders uh, who have kind of grown up in this environment realize what happens when markets seize or what happens when there's a ripple effect that might come backwards from the public markets. Like we're seeing the SPAC performance be, you know, absolutely abysmal. The IPO performance is rocky. You know, some are doing well, some aren't. But there could be a ripple effect. If public markets valuations correct, it could ripple all the way back through the private markets. And unlike the public markets where when price is correct, there's always a buyer. You know, there are people who are looking at the pricing and saying, look, I'm a value investor. Like now this is a great value. I will buy that stock. And by and large, the companies that are public companies, when their stock is trading, they're already profitable. So they don't necessarily need their stock price to trade in order to stay in existence. Like they're already self-sustaining entities. In the private markets, the minute that you have hair on your company, you know, and it could be through a correction in the market, it could be a down round, it could be not achieving enough, you know, and having burned through cash, you could go from a particular valuation to a no bid. It's not like just by correcting by 30% or 50% or even keeping a flat round would be a bargain for people. That's not how the venture world thinks. It's now a deal with an asterisk next to it. And when you have a deal with an asterisk next to it, it is more likely that the venture investor will move on to something else that's cleaner than try to convince themselves and then their partnership that this is now a bargain because the general rule of thumb is there are no bargains. Like the best companies are the ones with no asterisks. So yes, there will be bargain hunters that will come. And yes, there is a whole play if there's a correction in the market for capital to come in and help companies you know, that have taken a correction. But for a lot of companies, that correction could be you know, the, the actual death blow um, because they could end up in a no-bid situation. So the champagne that turns into a hangover could turn into a heck of a lot more than just a hangover. 
you know, that's something that if you've seen markets correct, you, you actually understand more than what's happening in the market today where things are just up and to the right and it feels like you can do no wrong. It's interesting because we're sitting here 13 years into a bull run and the vast majority of investors and entrepreneurs have actually never been through a downturn and have only seen up and to the right. And while we can't predict macro completely, and I think it's almost impossible to do with any level of accuracy, there are some storm clouds out there, and it's possible that interest rates uh, rise, the Fed balance sheet decreases inside, sucks some liquidity out of the system, and we're sitting in a different place a year from now. And while some of that can be mitigated against, um, at the end of the day, what you're really looking to do is preserve upside while mitigating the risk that you can, which tend to be on the more micro level. From your perspective, what are the big micro risks that can be mitigated against by VCs? Yeah, th this is not meant uh, as a disrespect to the, the profession that I'm in as a whole. Uh, it's more an observation about what I think is happening as this market corrects. But there is a bit of laziness that's going on with Team and Tam investors just planting money with companies or looking for the signal from someone doing around and saying that they must have done the underwriting. Therefore, it's a good company. So let me follow on and put some money into the company and give them even more runway. And that's where you're seeing a lot of these back-to-back -back rounds with very little progress, if zero progress being made at a higher price with the new money coming in. But as a good fiduciary uh, and as a good advisor to companies, the most important thing to look at is, you know, you, you have to look at some point in the future uh, when you would raise your hand for capital again. So think about it as cash out minus three months or cash out minus six months if you want to be more conservative. And you actually want to look at what that company looks like, right? Not the company of today, but you want to really play out um, an operating plan, scenarios, understanding what happens if everything goes right, understanding what happens if things don't all go right, and staring at what that company looks like, cash out minus six months or cash out minus three months. And if that company is a company that's more valuable than the company of today, not just in terms of size, not just in terms of you know scale, but the actual company, have you de-risked dimensions of the business? Do you know more about the outcomes? Have you uh, built something that now has more intrinsic value than it did before? Then you have a plan that hopefully is growing faster than your consuming capital. Right, So you're accreting enterprise value faster than you're burning through capital. And you know those are the healthiest companies. And you know one of the things that makes me very bullish on the future is that if you look at companies when we first started funding companies in 2008, 2009, 2010, the best companies in our portfolio would grow by two to two and a half X year over year. Like those were the, the, the right-hand tail companies were growing at that pace. We're now seeing companies, especially at the very early stages, that are able to grow their customer base or whatever metric you use to talk about progress. Sometimes they're doubling between when we issue a term sheet and when we close the paperwork, right? We're seeing companies routinely grow by 5x year over year, right? And if you do the compounding math of the difference between 2x year over year and 5x year over year, even for just the first year or two of the company's growth, they're materially different companies. You know, we had one company in Latin America, and people can probably guess which one it is that's doing quite well. 
um, for two years in a row, they grew by about 7x year over year. Now, just think about that. That company is 50 times the size of what it was in just two years. So if you can achieve results like that, because scaling is digital, it doesn't require as many people, you know, you're able to onboard the customers if you can find them. You have marketing channels that now connect you to all the customers that you're looking for. There's a bunch of referrals that can happen if you have high NPS scores. Like that narrative of watching the right-hand tail companies grow at 7x year over year for multiple years should make you very bullish on some of the entry points if you end up with the right team and the right problem. And, you know, it's why I think you ask me things that I look for in this market to make me comfortable. I like attacking problems where there already are revenue models attacking that problem where there are incumbents that are making money. So thing number one, there is a model out there that has scaled and is making money. If you pair that with a really crappy solution or NPS scores or customer treatment that still describes a broken problem, then I think you have the right to actually build a gigantic company and steal all of that market share. So I don't like when a founder comes to me and says, look at, look at this great opportunity. I'm going to disrupt company X. And then you look at company X and you're like, they have like NPS scores of 80. Like customers are actually happy with the incumbent. Like why, what makes you think you can disrupt them? And they say, well, I can do this better. And I'm like, well, if the customers are already happy, like better might not be good enough. But if you can find products and services where you're describing a broken problem and the incumbent is making money with that broken solution, then you actually can attack the problem and have a pretty damn good shot at building a big company. I love that thought. And, you know, we've talked about so many of these industries where actually NPS scores are actually quite low. In fact, the banking industry has some of the lowest NPS scores. And so, you you know, our thought about a digitally native bank as really being one of the top 10, I think will happen. It's just a matter of, again, what is the time bound on it? This has been a lot of fun. And I feel like you and I could talk about this stuff for hours and we haven't even delved into some of the things that I was thinking of. But I want to end with a fun little thought experiment for you. And I want to take your GP hat off for a second, thinking about the capital markets for a second and put yourself in the shoes of an allocator. You're you know, making a presentation to the uh, a board of an endowment or the CIO on where you think the best places to place capital within the innovation sector are. And of course, there's so many playbooks early stage seed managers, there's the growth, high deployment hedge funds. How would you construct your portfolio and what would you be your recommendation? So I, I am definitely a fan of balance, but balance is very different in today's market than you know the traditional stocks and bonds and cash and a little bit going to esoterics and privates. You know, the the allocation that we've been used to for decades is the wrong allocation in today's market, given that there's no yield in bonds and there's very little alpha left in the public markets, you have to think about it very differently. So in a world where inflation is kicking in, and I am of the belief that inflation is kicking in and the, the reporting and the numbers are just, uh, they're, they're hard, but they are wrong. Like inflation, I think, is here and I think will be you know, pronounced for uh, quite some period of time. But 
if you believe inflation is real and you believe that there's a lot of transference of enterprise value from incumbents to the private markets, and I, I am a, a believer in that narrative, then you would be allocating a lot of your money into privates. And a beta strategy makes a lot of sense as a, a big piece of your allocation, just trying to get exposure to kind of the the qualified beta, you know, trying to play a, a morning star type strategy like a, a tiger or a KOTU is, is absolutely brilliant in today's market. Um, but if you want to generate alpha, uh, there still is a lot of alpha in early, early stage uh, venture. Um, but the key is looking for non-consensus type investments. So going back to what venture capital was originally designed to do, which was to take ideas with a bunch of unknowns and figure out how to de-risk those unknowns, flip over cards one at a time and see if you're actually right and you have the ability to solve problems that other people haven't solved. You know, non-consensus, very difficult problems. I think there's just massive amounts of alpha as well as investing, you know, early in not just ideas that are non-consensus, but founders that are non-consensus or geographies that are non-consensus. So, you know, we at, at QED are looking at some geographies like Africa, you know, as a place to go because there's a lot of alpha to be generated, you know, in that market before, let's say, a lot of the other fintech investors get there. So I, I would be allocating, you know, a bunch of the money into beta in private markets, and then I would be seeking alpha in the earliest stages in the ecosystem with managers that can find non-consensus investment opportunities. Those are excellent thoughts. And, you know, when you think about on the alpha side and seeking alpha and looking at people that are investing in things that are non-obvious, non-consensus, it is a difficult thing for a lot of investors because if you look at the quadrant of, I can invest with the crowd or against the crowd, and I can be right or wrong. And the best place typically to generate alpha is when you bet on things that the crowd is not bet on and you're right. But it also leaves you open to the risk of being wrong and banging against the crowd. And a lot of people actually don't take those non-consensus bets because of the fear of being in that bottom right quadrant. And so, you know, it's something that everyone talks about. I think it's harder to actually do in practice, particularly for a newer manager who is looking at the long term and not wanting to flame out too quickly. And so it is an interesting market. I mean, there's over 4,000 active venture funds right now that are along the spectrum. I'm excited to see it. This has been a really fun conversation as always. I'm looking forward to hopefully doing a part two at some point. But uh, thanks again for joining us. Uh, it was great being here and uh, I will be back whenever you want me. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Venture Unlocked. We really hope you enjoyed our conversation with Frank. To learn more about him or QED investors, be sure to go to ventureunlocked.substack.com for detailed notes on the show, as well as my ongoing commentary about the world of venture capital. Venture Unlocked is also available on iTunes or Spotify for download. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and a review as it really helps us out. And don't forget to hit the subscribe button in order to get each and every Venture Unlock episode as soon as it's released.